0: Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachelle Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices: Stories of MST. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to a new episode of Silence Voices: Stories of MST. As always, I'm your host Rachel Smith here with a new episode, and welcome to the new month. It is December, finally. Yes, we are getting close to the end of the year. And today's interview is with just a powerhouse—the only word that is needed to describe Chaplain Tammy Briggs—is incredible. She is so energetic, so emphatic, and you just want to listen to her when she speaks. And she has had such a broad experience with the Army as a whole. She's gone through every facet of Army life. And now she is doing so much to protect young soldiers and mentor them and Make them understand that what happened to her should never happen to anyone. Her story is one of how MST impacts military families, namely their children. It's also a love story of how she met her husband. And there's also this aspect of MST where she was impacted by this throughout her entire career. And even now, she says there are still moments where people behave inappropriately because they don't understand that she already knows their game and she's ready to take them on. But her story is one that I think a lot of people can relate with. And there's also this factor of her being a chaplain. So she... So she is fluid within a command. She can visit any shop, any workspace, and counsel someone. She is just a lovely person. I I feel like her family and anyone that gets to encounter her throughout a workday is very, very lucky. So you will definitely hear that come across. She has a wicked sense of humor, and she is just so resilient through all of this. Her story is one that you definitely don't want to miss. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And if you want to send Chaplain Briggs a letter of encouragement or just tell her that her story really resonated with you, hang out till the end of the episode and we'll get you the information on how to chat with her. Hey, Chaplain Briggs. I just wanted to thank you so much for meeting me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you,
1: Rachelle, for reaching out and just allowing me an opportunity to share my story and to also
0: just also glean from you because the healing is ongoing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Healing is not linear. So you've experienced a lot of what the Army has to offer. Can you tell us about that? What was your whole story and career like? Okay.
1: So I joined the military at 17 while I was still in high school because my father was in the Army National Guard. So when I saw his uniform, I remember my dad, he deployed to Operation Desert Storm. Back in the '90s, and so I remember it was a hollow feeling. Actually, it's like, "Wow, what does this really mean?" I didn't know what it meant. i just sharing with me the benefits of joining military service and everything that came with it. And and there wasn't very uh, many prospects in my small town in Alabama where you could leave uh, high school and have trajectory that was promising. So they called it the service. You join the service and. The whole world opens to you. And so that's exactly what I did. I joined the guard initially, then I got back and then went to went active duty, stayed active duty just for a few years, and then went back to the guard because I'm I was homesick, first time away from home, wasn't ready for force so at all. And <laughs> and this was back in the mid-90s. Came back home, joined the guard, and then did 10 years in the guard, wasn't working out, it couldn't get promoted, then I switched to the Army Reserve and then I got deployed as soon as I went to the Army Reserve. So I'm like 12 years in. Got deployed to Kuwait, Operation Enduring Freedom. And at that point, I was late 20s, 26, 27, 28, had already been licensed and ordained as a preacher, Um, had answered the call of God on my life. And then I went there. I I reclassed my MOS to become a chaplain assistant. And I was at E4, had made E5 in the reserves, went to Kuwait, and ran into some amazing chaplains, was very active in the gospel service. And when I got back in 2007, I married my husband. We met on a deployment. And then when I got back, I heard the call of God. I said, go be a chaplain. So I had to start seminary. So that's how all of that happened. But it began with my father sowing the sea of all the opportunities that the army could give me. The chaplaincy came 12 years later after seeing how chaplains really changed lives. And I was already a and was going through my story at that moment and turned to chaplains to help me. And that started this whole, like, you know what? Chaplains change lives. I'm already a preacher. How
0: about I combine the symbiotic relationship and do the same for us soldiers? That is just quite the background. And I think that's that's eye-opening to people. They don't really know the difference between serving in all the different areas that are available in the Army. But I, I definitely want to hear more about this group of chaplains at, that you ran into that were so instrumental in your life.
1: I At that point, you know, I had worked with a chaplain in my reserve unit when I reclassed to be a chaplain assistant. Amazing servant leader. Lieutenant Colonel, I was an E-4, but that's where he was slotted. Um, but like I said, I was a little bit older. I was already like 28, 29 years old. I had you know, I was out of the wild stage and ready to really be focused on my army career. And that chaplain was just such an amazing man of faith. He was also a prison chap. He took me to his prison one drill weekend and I saw these prisoners that he had a whole orchestra. They played French horn. They played the saxophone. I'm like, oh my God, but it was a federal prison, a very talented group of guys. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so the army reserve deployed me, away from my chaplain with another unit. And when I met these chaplains, such great men of faith, I met one female chaplain while I was there, but they helped me through a lot of healing that had been long overdue that had been, you know, I had suppressed and just the messages and just the interaction and just the spirit of God that rested on them really spoke to me. And so I was like, This is what I need. I needed to be, and to be honest with you, unfortunately, and it may sound bad, but I needed to be away from my children during that season of my life when I was on that deployment because I was going through so much inner pain that I had nobody to to talk to. So everybody
0: expects for you to perform, but nobody ever asks you how you believe. That is a truth bomb if I've ever heard one. Mm -hmm. It really is pretty incredible when you think about it, just how much a military family is tasked with when there's a deployment. A deployment really turns a military family upside down on its head. It does. It really does. And it's and it's not easy on the kids
1: or the spouse that's left behind. That's why you have to really work hard at trying to ensure those strong bonds. Those bonds are there and those roots are there and those connections are there. Um, because when the army comes calling, you know, I have no choice but to answer. And if my house has already is, is been in shambles, a deployment is going to
0: destroy it. So it's important to have, you know, to, to make every moment count. My parents, they've been together since, I think, 76, I'd say, if I got that right. Yeah, they were high school sweethearts. It's It's very cute. But it's odd to me from watching their marriage, people that I've dated in the past, they've been very uncomfortable with the idea of not being with their person whereas yeah. i'm like oh do you have to go like <laughs> all right see ya like <laughs> right I, I wonder what my kids are gonna think when they
1: get. i think they're gonna be the same way same way it's not it's no longer a uh, trauma i'm used
0: to it but i truly didn't realize that that's not a normal experience for most people back then uh in the early nineties. Like I remember the first time my mom really left, she went to officer training school or is it OTS or OCS? I can't remember, but she went to that. And I think every night I was like, where's mom? And it was my dad, my younger brother and my older brother and I hanging out for a few weeks while she was gone. I might've been maybe four or five at the time, I think. But then there was this graduation ceremony and I see this lady that looks sort of familiar but she's standing straight and taller than I've ever seen her and she has this beautiful blue uniform on and she just looks like a a superhero. Then it was like, "Oh snap, that's my mom." So to me, it's really interesting to see that play out in adulthood because if a significant other tells me hey, I got a better paying job, but it's on the other side of the world. I'm like, oh, all right. Right. Because it's, it's just not a big deal to me. It's something I'm, I'm very used to seeing. Exactly. Take away the shock. Valve. Been there, done that. No, you'll be back. Okay. That's not the typical American experience. And you said you met your husband in that time. Um, was he also in the military too? So
1: he's medically retired. Oh, okay. I see. Chris had deployed like four times and that was his fifth deployment at that time he did the six on six off as well. That was his final deployment before he finally went into recruiting where he was shielded from being, having to deploy, but we met on that deployment. So yeah, but he's been medically retired now since 2016. So that's the same year I came on active duty as a chap and we had a one month overlap. He medicaled out and I sessioned in and then, so I took the reins. He was, he had the active duty reins, and I was following him around as a reservist in chaplain school. And then uh, once I finished my seminary, then we kind of did the high five, you're out, you're in. And now we've been on active duty following me now seven years. So yeah, it is kind of awesome that
0: I have a military spouse because I don't have to do a lot of explaining. I appreciate that factor. And it's like, it's not only the jargon, it's just the whole lifestyle. It's, it's so different from civilian life. And so if you're coming home from work and you're like, and you won't believe this acronym did this and the shirt did that and yada, 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 and they're just looking at you like, I know some of those words, like (laughs) it's, it's just not the same. Exactly. And I have to translate I will have to translate
1: everything into (laughs) civilian terms. And so with Christopher, I don't have to do that at all.
0: He is like, tell me about, like, oh my God. And And just seeing the way that you light up talking about him. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of going through your career, you've been through pretty much every facet of the Army. You've gone Guard, Reserve. Now you're active duty. Can you tell our listeners a little bit of what that experience was like for you? Well, each one of them has their own culture
1: and, and, and they have their own misnomers. Going through the different Army components, there's things that I love and hate out of all of them. The Guard was my genesis. It's where I, I fell in love with the military. Going to basic AIT, coming back to Guard. So the Guard is like, and they had a slogan back in the 80s and the 90s, the Guard is family. Because basically, you literally see fathers and sons, mothers and daughters in the same unit for 20 years because they they live right down the street. And so they just stay in the unit and they just stay till they die out. And that's part of the problem because nobody can get promoted because the same dude or dudette been sitting on the same slot for 20 years and not going anywhere. It's like, that's the only promotion you can get is on that slot. And they're there looking like, well, I'm not going. Anywhere. So it's like, okay, I guess I gotta go find another unit. Uh, it came to a point where they were saying, hey, none of you people are gonna get promoted because we don't have the slots. Go to the reserves, or go to the Air Force, an Air Force Reserve, an Air Force Guard. And so a lot of people went Air Guard or Air Reserve. And I, I, I'm i like, I'm not changing the branches, dude. No, I'm too Army. I'm too. Huh, huh. I would drive them crazy in the Air Force with, you know, let's go take the hill. Let's go airborne air assault, you know, <laughs> huh. I'm staying Army. So I went to the reserves and no joke, I went from like E 4 to E 6 in two and a half years. I, I promote it very quickly because the reserves has slots, of slots and you don't ever have to worry about that. But with the reserves, money is always an issue. They never have a lot of funding because all the funding goes to big army. And then when you come big army, it's day in, day out, every single day, you're immersed in the culture. You get paid. That's great. But you have to deal with stuff. You have to deal with people and their stuff. A lot of broken people. Um, In the reserves, you get a break. It's like, I don't have to, I get to breathe. You know, I don't have to see you for a whole month. But with the Army, it's every single day. But the beautiful thing as a chaplain, I get to help people work out their stuff. But then you also have to figure out a way to manage your stuff because every single day you show up, they expect you to have the game facing. You. So in the reserves right. and guard, You get to take the mask off and you can just be yourself if you work on yourself or if you don't, then you don't have to worry about putting the game face back on for a month. But in the Army, regular Army, it's every day. There's nowhere to hide. So you
0: either deal with yourself or your stuff is going to deal with you. And there she goes, just dropping another truth bomb. So you have had this really interesting look at the Army from all these different perspectives and also a life changing experience with MST. Do you want to take us through that experience to your level of comfort? Was it right when you joined or was it sometime while you were transitioning between the reserves and the guard? So my first encounter with
1: sexual indiscretion and sexual advances started in the guard. Because you're this young perky turkey coming into the guard and you got these old folks there. I was not aggressed upon as some of my friends were. Um, but I saw it firsthand where there was a staff sergeant who had been in like 20 years already, and he just decided just to target one person. And, you know, we shielded her. We we made sure she was never alone. We we got our grit about ourselves and was like, yo. And that's why I learned my grit. I learned my grit in the guard. Because, you know, month to month, you, and then you do these two weekends, two, two weeks a year where you're going in the woods and you're with these guys. And they think that this is the time for them to just have whatever way they want to have with a person. And it's like, yo, I'm not here for that. You know, and so you learn your grit with that. And that's where I learned to be, to get my grit. Then I went on active duty thinking that, you know, you hear about it, but you don't think, and I was at Fort Hood, which is already famous for this type of thing, especially with what recently happened just a few years ago. I had a first sergeant who we heard Never confirmed, couldn't confirm, but had heard he'd been sleeping with a lot of the soldiers in the pack office, which is the, the personnel office that is located at the unit. I'm hearing about it, but no need for me to investigate. This was back in like 95, and it was time for me to get promoted, so I got promoted from E2 to E3. This first sergeant told me, if you want to make E4, you know what you got to do. Oh, my God. I was like, check, please. I literally failed two PT tests in a row and asked to go home to be chaptered out. I could not handle that culture. It was almost like you were cornered. Back in those days in the Army in the 90s, NCOs ran new. You never really saw your company commander. Who's going to believe a little E3 over an E8? There was no sharp back in those days. There was no EO. There was only IG, and I never saw a child. Who was going to believe me? who could I tell that wasn't going to wrap me out? There was no system of record, system of recording. So what I did was I failed one PT test, not on purpose. But when the second one came around, I knew that was grounds for chapter. What I did was I was coming in, I was running and I was almost done, could have made it and I stopped and walked so I could fail it on purpose. So I'll say this, my commander brought me in, me and another guy who had also failed. He said, I will give you guys another chance. I'll give you another PT test in 30 days. I'll give you a chance. You don't have to get out of the army. I'm not, you know, in the business of kicking soldiers out. He asked the guy, he said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to stay in. I want to pass. He asked me what I want to do. I said, I want to go. And they started the chapter paperwork. The funny thing is, um, I was going through Transition Point when he read, you know, as you're out processing, and there was this black female at Transition Point civilian. She looked at me and said, you're really getting out? And I said, yeah, I'm getting out. And she said, you're making the absolute biggest mistake of your entire life. You're never going to be anything. This is going to mess you up for the rest of your life. I was already defiant in my posture when people spoke destruction on my life. Yeah, I regretted getting out that way afterwards, but it was the best decision that I had to make at the time. I went home. I went home to my mother. She asked me, what happened to you? And I really could not explain to her what was going on, but that affected me. I didn't realize how that affected me, where you're making me, is a quid pro quo, you're making me bargain my chastity, my value, my worth over an E4 rank in, in order to get that I have to come through sexual. The foolishness of it. And I mean, that still just kind of just baffles and bothers me today. I went home back to the guard, got on the reserves. And then as soon as I crossed over into the reserves. I got orders to deploy. <laughs> I was like, dang it, I was safe. I was safe from this. as soon as I'm like, I saw him swearing like square the firm. Oh, here's the deployment orders. Like, dude, like, come on. You could have gave me a year. <laughs> yeah. So what they did was I had two MOSs. So I, had, I was 42 Alpha, which was S1 personnel specialist, human resources specialist, which was my MOS before I reclassed. When I reclassed, I reclassed a 56 Mike Chaplain Assistant, but the Army Reserve was short 42 Alphas. So they deployed me as a 42 Alpha, even though I had just graduated AIT as a 56 Mike. Transferred me to a postal unit in North Carolina. I lived in Alabama. Made me, transferred me from Alabama to North Carolina to deploy on this year-long deployment to Kuwait to run a post office with with this whole entire team that I did not know. So we did our our mobilization. Pre-mob was at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. That's when the lieutenant began to harass me. The first few statements, it was almost like he was grooming me. He was like, you have the perfect model face. Thank you, sir. Not really sure how I'm supposed to respond to that, but I let it slide. You know, because you're just not trying to even be bothered. Sharp was not a thing yet. This was back in 2006. Sharp didn't come into play until 2010, from what I've been told. But there was no Sharp. EO was in place. So just every day, he would make comments to me. I'm just trying to get through this appointment. I need the money. I was recently divorced at the time, had three little babies, like literally left. Was she two? Yeah, two-year-old, a 35 three-and-a-half-year-old, and an eight-year-old, all girls. No money. No job, trying to seek a job, trying to find my way. This deployment literally came right on time because it was an opportunity for me to get back on my feet financially. So we deployed to Kuwait. We're there and I'm about 29, 30 years old, something like that. And still just reeling and coming out of the trauma and stuff from my divorce. Happy to be out of that. That was a domestic violence situation. So I'm already going in compromised, just trying to just rebound in my life. Happy finally out of that crazy situation, out of that storm, out of that dark place. It seems like I went from the frying pan into the fire. It's a year long deployment. This lieutenant just targeted me. I was one of three females in the platoon. He just decided that I was going to be his deployment boot. It was pervasive throughout the organization at Echelon. So it was the commander, no, not the commander, but the first arm. The first arm for sure. Because, you know, soldiers, we know stuff. Like we, the PNN, the, the private news network is alive and well. We do everything. So this lieutenant finally just, I guess, he just decided that I was gonna be his deployment day. And just a short of it, because it went on for the entire time. So we were together 15 months, three months at the mob station and then a year on ground on this deployment. One time he said, won't you use what you got to get us a vehicle from TNP? Basically go sleep with somebody at the TNP lot to get us a vehicle. It finally came to a head when he, like I said, he's just been making comments and being very toxic towards me because I was denying him and turning him down. So he made it personal. He was upset that I was a woman, a black female, young black female who knew her worth and was like, my body, my soul is not for sale. You don't get to have your way with me. You don't get to talk to me like that. I was I was going back and forth with him. You know, when he would say stuff to me, I was calling him like, sir, you know, you're unprofessional. This is not right. You guys are just making decisions. And so I would challenge him on his junk, right, on his lack of leadership. So one day they put me in the registered mail room. Registered mail is the area of the post office where the high value items are. Somebody could send literally send a, a million dollars diamond necklace they have to send it not certified registered mail i handled hundreds of thousands of dollars cash i've handled hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of valuables i was the only person allowed in that room because we didn't want anything stolen so you know i almost had to have a top secret clearance to do this but it has like a bank vault door he came in there shut the door and told me nobody's gonna hear you scream oh my goodness it was about six o'clock in the evening. Because I was making my last count inventory, and he did that. And that was the first time that I felt like not only was my life in danger, but that I was truly raped. He didn't do it. He stopped. The final straw was I had met Christopher, and he knew all of this. The chaplains were talking me through this. But they were active duty. We was reserved, so they was outside of the chain. But I was talking to them. I met my husband. I was talking to him. My husband and I, no lie. Rachel, my husband and I, well, we weren't married then, but we were dating. We went to Charlie's Sub. They had Charlie Sub there. We were inside of the Charlie's Sub. I was at the counter making my order. He was in there. The LT was in there with one of the other sergeants, male sergeants. Chris is standing right beside him. This is the boldness of this person. He came up and brushed his body against the backside. Chris was about to knock his block off. I just said, babe, let's just... I had enough. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know who to talk to. The commander and the first sergeant was two hours away at a different camp. I went to the active duty component and went to their EO. And since Sharp was not invented yet, they said, this doesn't fall into any area of EO. But they took my report anyway. The commander sent another lieutenant, female lieutenant, to take my story, to take my, my statement. What happened was the active duty really couldn't do anything because it didn't fall into any area of PO. However, they just sent it to somebody. And so then that brought the whole thing into investigation. They got statements from the soldiers and the platoon sergeant who was a female but told me all of this is happening to me because of boots. this wouldn't be happening to you because you're boots. What does that mean? Yeah. What, what how does that even have anything to do with anything? They got statements from the soldiers. They told the soldiers what to say. They coached the soldiers what to say. At the end of the day, the commander, he had to come down because, like I said, he went out somewhere. I don't know where it went, but it got to his desk. And he told me, Do you have any idea what you're putting this lieutenant through? That's what the commander told me. What you're putting
0: him through. Yeah.
1: I tried to talk to the first sergeant. I said, first sergeant, I need help. He said, I can't hear you. The phone is breaking up and hung the phone up on me. They wrote my NCOER. When we got ready to leave, they wrote my NCOER. Said I wasn't fit to be in the Army, fit to be an NCO, fit to be anything. And it was retaliation because they found it unsubstantiated. As I said, there was no shark. So under EO, yeah, it's unsubstantiated because... Gender discrimination, sexual orientation, which wasn't a thing then, but it, it didn't fit, so there was nothing they could do with it. But the commander could have brought him under behavior unbecoming of a commission officer, anything like that. But they were willing, and this is what the commander said, I'm not willing to mess up this lieutenant's career. So I got a bad NCOER, went home traumatized, full-blown PTSD. My pastor, she looked at me one day, she said, what happened to you? This was 15 months of straight aggression aggressing me sexually every day, saying something to me that was off-putting, that was inappropriate. I didn't realize he warned me down. He really could have raped me because I had no more fight and nobody to help. So my pastor said, because she was trauma-informed evangelism, I went to the VA, talked to a female therapist. This is what she said. She said, I am diagnosing you with military sexual trauma. She said, because even though he never touched you, he still raped you. That's what she said. That in and of itself, I had no idea that rape was not just physical. She said, he never touched you, but he still raped you. Because at any moment, Rachelle, I didn't know which night was going to be the night. Yeah. But I just think that he thought about consequences to himself, not to me, not to what he was going to do to me, what was going to be to me. But I think that he knew that I had spoken up enough where it was not going to end well for him. And I think that's the only reason why he stopped short of raping. And for years, I suffered post-traumatic stress. For years, I was depressed when I came home. I was mean to my children. I had every sign of PTSD, the anger, the nightmares. Every night, I would dream that he was on top of me. It was crazy. Before the deployment ended, I talked to a chaplain, and that chaplain believed me. He was a major and that chaplain, for the last 60 days of that deployment, got me moved. When I told him, I said, hey, sir, I'm really a 56 Mike, but the Army Reserve deployed me in my formal MOS. He got me out of that building, and for the last 60 days, I was able to work at the chaplain, Wounded, still working. leading but still bleeding. But I was there, and the chaplain gave me a safe haven to just get away from it. But my therapy did not happen, did not start. It actually started then when the chaplain believed me and spoke life to me. And I knew then when God called me to be a chaplain, I knew that I was called to protect women. Now men, because now my trans men are are traumatized and raped and everything. But that came much later. But I got into fight for female soldiers who did not have a voice in court, who were never believed. And that is my story.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And I, I can't imagine the gravity of the therapist at the VA that made that statement prior to diagnosing you with PTSD. What was your reaction when she said that to you? I imagine it was pretty visceral, maybe tears, everything came pouring out.
1: Absolutely. That statement still, I I just don't have words for that statement. And that was in 2007. No, that was in 2008, January. It's 2023, and I still have yet
0: to unpack, no lie.
1: That seems like
0: one of those statements that would haunt you for a long time.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, I didn't stay with the therapy because I, I did not have an understanding of what therapy was really about. It's normalized now. But I thought because I was a preacher, because I was saved, because I was spiritual, that that was all that I needed. But no, you need God in there. And I have learned since that psychology is the daughter of theology because God created the brain. And I've gone through a lot of trauma therapy training, and I can understand better looking back that I needed to have stayed with the therapy. I didn't want to be on pills but I needed to be on pills because I, I needed everything at that point because he wore me down. He made me this big. And I think that was the agenda, the intern. But when she said that, I thought rape was only physical, but he took away so much from me that he literally raped me. He raped me of my self-esteem. He raped me of my confidence. He raped me. He took. He took a lot. The final move was the physical piece. But I had enough fight in me to still stand up to him and say no, because I went through molestation as a child and I was not going to relive that. And so it just seems like sometimes I'll be honest with you, and I don't know if anybody have ever shared this with you um, Mm -hmm. as you have done these interviews, but sometimes, Rachel, it seems like we have a target on our back. Once we have been molested, it seems like every situation we get into, we end up in a
0: place where we are back. It's like, why? Why me? Yes, actually, I I have heard that in an interview or two. And I also share that same experience. And I've asked that question many times when I was in therapy. And it seemed to me that the general consensus was not really out of victim blaming, but it was more how we've learned to cope. If you haven't healed from that kind of trauma, well, you're still very much in survival mode throughout your adult years, and predators can pick up on that. You you might exhibit more people-pleasing behaviors, for example, or you're maybe a little more lax in your boundaries yeah. than somebody that hasn't been through something like that. They can say no really easily, whereas when we said no when we were children or teenagers, there were repercussions to it, or it was just flat-out ignored. So. We didn't really get the value of of saying no in, in that sort of situation. And the predators that are out there, they're just out seeing what they can get away with. And someone that hasn't been through that kind of trauma, I think they'd recognize a predator right away. Whereas we, survivors of childhood sexual trauma, it's behavior we're not only familiar with, it's behavior that we're deeply uncomfortable with but we also don't really know how to extricate ourselves from that
1: and, and, and i i had no boundaries in place i didn't know anything about them some of this stuff is so new to to the psychological part of us this stuff is now always it's everywhere now where was it 15 years ago when i needed it but the thing is my mother raised a strong daughter and I had a strong sense of respect. I had more self-respect for myself. That is what created the imaginary boundaries that I didn't know that I needed. It was just self-respect ratio. It was not me saying, excuse me, sir, you have no business saying that to me. And I will report. I could not speak up for myself in that respect. All I knew is, you not getting these drugs, because oh, I, I love myself <laughs> enough not to do that to myself. However, that came from me having to stand up to men in my family. That was learned as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-old after my molestation. Then I knew after 13, I was molested, right? I had a cousin who was wounding me at 13. I felt prey. I didn't understand and he came after me. But since that time I knew nobody nobody's going to have my body. And so I was advanced upon in a lot of different places by a lot of different men and I knew to say no. But that's the only reason. It wasn't cuz I had
0: boundaries. I think also a lot of it is just as black women there's a whole different perception to us once we reach a certain age. Like you go from Aw, she's so cute with her pigtails and bubbles. And then, boom, you're, you're fast. And it's in the blink of an eye. I can share this real quick. Um, when I got to my first base, no joke, when I first stepped foot into the headquarters building, <laughs> the boss of the protocol office, she took one look at me and she was like, You're too pretty. Be careful. Stay away from the pilots. And I didn't really know how to react. I, I was grateful for the warning, but I didn't. I, I don't think at the time I really, really understood the gravity of what she was saying to me. Or I don't know. Maybe I just I, I wasn't in the right headspace to to actually hear her. And then throughout that first week or two, when I was in processing and going around the base and getting my paperwork done and all of that good stuff, I heard it repeatedly. Of, You're too pretty, and I'm just sitting there like, oh. Okay. <laughs> and they were right because after that first two weeks somebody came after me i i didn't know how to react but they were all right it was it was just horrible and that makes me think of one detail in your story where you said that the soldiers were coached on what to say in order to protect that lieutenant to be in your shoes in that moment how did that feel that just the level of betrayal i mean you've you've grown up around the army you know that there's all these tenets of honor there's service before self there's your brothers and sisters that are supposed to you know have your back and take care of you but when they say have your back you don't think like
1: that correct yeah so they use intimidation so the lt was very intimidating and the platoon sergeant, even as a female, she was Caucasian. He made her feel so good about herself. But she had very little sex. She just bought into, I'm standing beside my battle buddy. I'm the platoon sergeant. He's the platoon leader. She was jealous and insecure. And I had finally got my life back, my fight back, my strength back after that tumultuous marriage. I mean, I was like, I am woman here me war. I'm here to claim and get back everything. This marriage stole from me. So I was too strong for her. I was too secure for her. I was too young for her. She had to be like in her 50s. I was everything she wasn't, and she despised it. All I came to do was get a leg up for me and my daughter. I didn't know her from Adam house Cat and I could care less about her internal struggles because I was on a rebound in life. And so she partnered with the LT to intimidate the other soldiers, and the majority of them were male, and they slept in the same tent area as the LT, and he coached them. He told them what to say. I'm going to tell you something. One night after we had Friday night chapel service, one of those male soldiers was so filled with guilt. He came to me and cried on my shoulder and said, "I am so." Supposed. He 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 apologized that me, that I lied on that statement. How was I going to prove that he loved? I was just a little e-file, but he didn't retract the statement because he had too much to lose. They they literally had they they had a monopoly. They ran it like their own personal I don't know it was bad and nobody was there to correct. And I, and I have this saying that I use in my units that I tell my leadership, power unchecked becomes abuse.
0: That's so right. And in my situation, well, you know, unfortunately in my situation, I was dealing with pilots and we all know that they're treated like the gods of the air force. They're tribal. Yes. That's a perfect description. They're tribal. It seemed like, they got the. They pulled the cover wagons around, like you know, back in the day, and they were like, "Okay, let's all get our stories straight." And even though I had text message evidence of someone admitting to harming me, it wasn't enough. Mm-mm. It's almost disgusting to see how much support a predator or an assailant will get, yeah. rather than the person that's harmed. Yeah. it just doesn't make sense how. They uplift this person, and not only do they uplift this person, they promote them. They move them to new bases or posts, and they put them around an entirely new crop of potential victims, and then the situation just continues to perpetuate itself over and over again. Meanwhile, the people that are harmed that have this upcoming battle with mental illness and getting proper health care they're just shuffled out quietly and, and sent on their way. They're just left to pick up the pieces of their lives. And to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. And, and
1: you, you're left to carry the emotion. Bitch, yes. The entire experience. Nobody checks on you. Nobody cares. It's really, and you're absolutely correct. The system is set up to protect the predator. And the thing about it is, if they feel like this guy or gal Is a rock star is a fast tracker. They're gonna make go. They're gonna do this. They're gonna do that. They will silence you. They will do whatever they can. Yeah, you got promoted. Is a whole lieutenant colonel. I'm looking like, I wonder what what trail of tears is behind him and other females. I don't know if it ever stopped, but he was not stopped in my situation. It's just it's just it just baffles me. And I'm actually thinking about talking to a victim. I was even approached on LinkedIn by several victim advocates and said, yeah, Sharp wasn't a thing then, but it's a thing now. And
0: your case is never, there's no statute of limitations. More power to you and all the support in the world if you do decide to go forward with that. What is it like to wrestle with the thought that This person is still out there serving. And not only do they have rank, but you could possibly run into them again.
1: Yeah.
0: You don't want to see me. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: I honestly, probably everything will come to surface. I think if I was to see him face to face, no, I can't. I still can't. I don't know, Rachelle, you know, girl, you don't know if you're going to scratch his eyeballs out, if you're going to just. Like, seriously, you don't know, because I know I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not that broken E5 that left that deployment. I probably would want to stand
0: up for the girl who he hurt, because now I got right (laughs) too. That's very true. Could you take me through what it was like to start feeling the effects of the PTSD, the depression, all of the anxiety? And then watch it take its toll on your family. So I was going through different things
1: at the same time. The post traumatic stress from that deployment because of the sexual trauma or severe sexual abuse. Brand new married, I had joy and sorrow at the same time. And I was going through mommy guilt because I'd left my babies for 15 months. When I got back, that two-year-old was a -a three-and-a-half-year-old, you know, singing Alicia Keys wearing lipstick. Like, where did the time go? Like, I lost all this time. The nightmares were were almost instantaneous when I got home. And then, too, because of the time, the geopolitical atmosphere, that's when I was there when Saddam Hussein was executed. The threat con went through the roof. And we could not be in public without our weapons. It was very hype. So then I came back to the States after being used to a PX to shop at that was no bigger than a single wide trailer. I come to Walmart. It's humongous, hundreds of people in there, and then it's all of these lights everywhere. I was hyper vigilant, I had hyper arousal. I could not stand to be around people being crowds. I had my head on a swivel. I was looking for danger at every corner, but not only because it was happening in Kuwait as a response to those sympathizers with Saddam Hussein who took the threat con to a whole nother level, but it was because I had to look behind my shoulder every single day at work. So I was hyper vigilant, hyper aroused, depressed because they tried to destroy my career with that evaluation. That E7 said, I'm going to make sure you never get promoted. I did, but at the time I didn't know. I come back with this bad paperwork on me, this horrible experience, this hyper arousal, hyper vigilance, and then I'm supposed to mom. My kids missed their mom, and it took a while for us to even get a rhythm back. But I, I made some mistakes coming back because I took my kids immediately and not gradually because they had been used to my aunt, but I missed my baby, and I was thinking more about what I needed emotionally than what they needed. So I took them back all in one day, got off the plane, took them back. Opened the house, cleared out the cobwebs. It was like, we're home. But it took months to settle back in. It took a while. So I really needed a therapist to really walk me through all of that. But in my ignorance, I didn't think that I needed that. I just needed to be back with my kids. I just needed to be back home. And everything will just settle. I'm out of that. I'm, I'm back in Alabama. And I'm with my family. Oh, this will all go away. That was then. This is now. No, it was not okay. I was not okay. If you talk to my kids, they said that the woman that came back was not them, And it's true. I was not the, I was not the mother that. But Rachelle, I want to say this. We have to learn that it's okay to not be okay. I did my kids a disservice. I did myself a disservice. I should have went through the therapy sessions. I should have talked everything out with a therapist, with a trained therapist, and I had one, the lady that told me that. She knew she, she was a sexual trauma therapist, but he didn't rape me. He didn't touch me. I don't need that. Oh, I did. She was going to help me get to the bottom, and she probably would have helped me with my childhood stuff, too. See, when trauma happens, it reactivates all trauma. Girl, I was a hot mess. <laughs> I really was. But thanks be to God that if it wasn't for my faith and my faith community that prayed me through a lot, my husband prayed me through a lot, walked me through a lot. And eventually the healing came, but it could have came much sooner had I stayed with the
0: therapist. In many ways, I think it's hard to admit it to yourself. I don't know if it's maybe your brain is just trying to protect you or it's even this inner thought of like a subconscious thought of, This happened to me as a child, and there's no way I'm going to equate the two. Exactly. When I was in college, I wouldn't even call it domestic violence. I would just call it a situation. And I think I just, I didn't want to give it the proper term uh, because that would give it life. Where if I called it what it actually was, then I would have to deal with it and I wasn't ready to, it doesn't matter what euphemism you use, whether you call it a situation or that time or my trial or whatever, it doesn't matter how many layers you try to cover it up under, it's going to come up. One thing I also learned from both being a military child and then being active duty and, you know, almost being a spouse once It's that you are where you go and you go where you are, meaning you can't get away from yourself, even though you're in a new place. Like, sure, you might have gone like in my case, I went from Washington to Florida, but my Washington trauma was very much on my mind still in Florida. It was it it came out to get me (laughs) in Florida where I ended up hospitalized because I tried to just put it out of sight, out of mind because I was in a new place and it worked so well. I still had the same brain, still had the same body, still had the same issues. I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. What do you think your daughters would say, having watched your transformation, having watched you embrace strength, embrace healing, embrace the church, and embrace all of the support? What kind of effect do you think that had on them?
1: Oh, My babies get angry. I can't share too much with them because who wants to hear that somebody hurt their mom? Yeah. I know when I think about the things that my mother went through, like I literally get upset and I want to take revenge (laughs) on the people (laughs) that hurt my mom. But I educate them and, and, and I don't always go into the weeds because they're still very, very young. So I have to be careful with how much I share. But I do want them to protect themselves. My one daughter, she's in the Air Force now. She's 25, and so I have shared a lot more with her. Her sisters, soon to be 21, 19, and then I have a 12-year-old. I have four girls. So with the 19 and the 20-year-old, I'm starting to share a little bit more in order for them to help protect themselves so they can understand the signs and they can understand some of the things that they have already endured themselves. Not too much, but kids at school say things and everything like that. And so I kind of help them try to understand what these things lead to. That comment is really coded for this or that. And they're just seeing what your tolerance is, right? So I'm starting to share more with my daughters. They know that I was molested. I have shared that with them because I protect my kids at all costs. And I have been talking to them since they were old enough to walk and understand and these are the three questions that I ask. Has anybody touched? Is anybody trying to have sex with you? And then is, is anybody trying to fight? Because these are the questions that I wish my mother would have asked me so that I could have told her that, yes, mom. So, you know, secrets. We don't have secrets because you know about the secrets, right? It's our little secret. No, we don't have secrets. And the thing is, oh, if you tell your mom, then I'm going to do something to you. I, open, I have opened that up with my daughters since like four and five years old. They get tired of hearing, yes, mom, no, mom, no, mom. They're tired of it. But I'm teaching them safe space, safe touch, how to keep themselves safe and what unsafe looks like. With that being said, they understand that mom was molested. This is what leads to molestation. So I'm not going to allow that to happen to me. But as far as, them knowing the full of what happened to me in the military, only my oldest daughter knows because I have to help her protect herself. Baby, I don't care if it's a E7, if it's a E8, E9, if it's a officer, if it's a fellow E4, you do not have to succumb. You don't. You don't have to sleep with anybody for rank. You don't have to take any advances. You tell mom, I'm a chaplain now, and I will protect you. I will make a phone call to your commander. These are the things that I wish somebody could have done for me. They saw me at my worst, they did. And, and my oldest daughter, she's 25, she remembers it well. She remembers it more than the young. The, the baby girl, she doesn't remember anything because it was before she was born. But the younger two, the 20 and the 19-year-old, not vivid, they just remember just different things. Small little patches. But my oldest daughter, she remembers, she has fluid, and she remembers how I was. And she said, Mom, you're so mean. And I was mean, but I was hurt. And I didn't know how to express my pain. Anger is a secondary emotion. So I did not know the second third, second, and third order effects of post-traumatic stress and depression. The emotional toll that it takes on your family. Nobody talked to us about that. It is so much. For me, the unspoken does more harm than it does, you know, like the old adage. Oh, what you don't know won't hurt. That's a lot. My babies absorbed the brunt of my pain i wasn't physically abusive but i was emotionally unsafe i was depressed i was angry and out of that i do see where i was mean and it wasn't because i was a mean-spirited person i was hurting and i didn't know how to you know how it goes yeah you know what i've had to do i've had to do a lot of apologizing. i've had to try to not explain it away but give them context there's no excuse but I do have to give them context. Mommy was through. Mommy went through a very bad time. And so she's a little bit more understanding now that she's older. But when she was younger, she lashed out. So my oldest daughter really went off the rails. in her 16 and up, oh, my God, it was bad. But there's no blame. My baby was reacting to her environment created by a, a wounded mother. So we're still making amends we are and that's why rachel i love that you're doing this because people don't understand no they don't trauma is transgenerational, and that family members deal with our trauma and have to survive
0: i have to survive like my daughter probably wrote a book i had to survive my mom oh i completely understand what was the book uh the body keeps score i would say that book really lays it out for anybody to truly get a picture it really illustrates how trauma and you know sexual trauma in particular it's really like when you throw a pebble into a lake. These ripples just go outward and it gets larger and larger and larger. And that's exactly what happens is the person that gets assaulted, yes, they are going through all kinds of unimaginable horrors, but Those horrors are affecting their loved ones, their their spouse, their children, their brothers and sisters, their parents, their co-workers, their neighbors, people that they might cuss out in traffic. All of these people are affected by that one act of violence. And I remember not really being able to express this absolute rage that was underneath everything. For instance, I, I smile a lot. My smile was more of a mask to hide my constant anxiety. Like, if, if you saw me, I was smiling. It didn't matter the situation because I was terrified. And yeah, so I had this thin veneer of a smile, and then I was like the Hulk underneath, basically. And I, I didn't have good coping skills at the time, so my, my coping skill was alcohol partying, leaving and not telling anybody where I was going, just disappearing. There was just all sorts of things that were truly out of character for me, but it was what was working at the time. With that being said, when you started to incorporate the support of the church and this trauma-informed therapy, were there any particular coping skills that had worked best for you? Yeah, because I'm very spiritual. Um, I'm a Christian. And so, and, and like
1: I said, I was a preacher. If preaching on top of Trump, it comes out. <laughs> it was really, it was the Lord. It was God. It was prayer. It was all of those spiritual disciplines and those faith practices, staying close to God, staying in church, being poured into, being affirmed. Those are the things that helped me. But the thing is about that is, It isn't a direct that hits directly to the issue. It's kind of like peripheral. It's on the fringe, And so that's why the process took way longer because you're in denial. And I'm going to tell you, spiritual people, you know, they call everything the devil. So that's just the devil. And no, baby, that's trauma. Okay. And that's why I say we need trained therapists in the church so we'll know what's a demon and what is trauma. Because yeah. people have literally trauma episodes at church, and we want to call it a demon or whatever. And no, honey, that is just her screaming out because she had something happen to her, and this is the only place where she feels like she can be heard. So, so that's why I'm on this trajectory now, where I'm I'm going through trauma-informed evangelism and trying to become a trauma therapist on top of being a chaplain. But yeah, no, it was prayer. It was reading my Bible. It was turning my heart to God. It was crying out to the Lord with this pain, even if I had to scream to heaven and ask God a million times, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always being, why am I praying? Why am I being searched for? Why am I being hunted? And I found a friend, and he told me one day about five years ago, and, and I said, I said, why am I, why am I always praying? Predators no praying. Why always praying? He said, you're no longer pray. He said, now, you're bait. Oh, okay. So now, listen to this ratio. This is no freaking lie. Bait brings the predator to the place where the predator can be. Think about they put a piece of fat chicken in the water. Here come these alligators. Oh, no. It's not that you. we want to feed you. We want to catch you. <laughs> so now, He said, they're coming out to be exposed. They think they're coming for you. You're there. You're dangling on the string on the end of the fish hook. But no, 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 no. They're the ones that's about to be caught. Now that I'm strong, now I turn to that person and say, you will never feed on another woman in my presence. As long as I'm in this unit, as long as I'm on this base, you will be exposed. I think they kind of onto me now because they avoid me like the plague. But <laughs> but now I'm in a position where I am now bait. They see me, I'm beautiful. They see the cross, but some of them don't care. I was stalked in Korea as a chaplain by he said, Followed me until one night he saw me at night, and I was walking with five of my company commanders, and we were doing courtesy patrol. Do you think this predator cared that I was with? five guys. He saw me. He saw me. He had on all black, a black hoodie, a black hat. And he was had a hoodie up. to you know how you can tie it up working? He saw me and I saw him. And I told those five commanders, I said, that guy that's walking behind me, he's been stalking me. They turned around and surrounded him and said, if we ever, Rachelle, let me tell you something. He got so bad that he would come to chapel service when I would preach and sit in the back and stare at me the entire time. I'm telling you, some of these people have zero fear, but those company commanders, as their little sister, as their sister, they took up for me. They surrounded him and told him, don't you ever come near her again. So the tide began to change because now I'm being heard. People are believing that I'm having these experiences see what I'm saying? And this mm-hmm. is where the tide began to turn for me. Now I got help. I'm being heard. I'm believed. And I read this book, it's called Wounds to Wisdom. It was talking about the, the Holocaust, how trauma is transgenerational. Mm-hmm. All those people needed was a witness to their pain. I just need somebody to believe that I have been traumatized, that I've been hurt, and that now finally I'm being heard and I'm being believed. And if anybody in my position that have gone through what I've gone through will feel the same way. I just need a witness. And now I have witnesses. And now I play the role of a witness to another woman who have been traumatized. I don't dismiss it. Whatever the level is. Mine, it wasn't physical. It never turned physical, but I was still raped emotionally and mentally. And so now, regardless of the spectrum, I believe them. Uh And that is all that is needed to turn the tide on this whole situation. And no one is victimized on my
0: watch. One thing I noticed that had been a pattern throughout my life was that other people were somehow able to pick up on the fact that I had a a history of, of sexual trauma. And I'm not talking predators. I'm talking other people that had also experienced it. I don't know if it was something in how I carried myself. Because it wasn't something I I spoke about freely, but people would just pull me aside and, and they would tell me these things that happened when they were kids or maybe when they were in the military or in college, or maybe they were married to somebody in the military. But there was this odd magnet, I'd say. And I think, honestly, when that happened in the past, I wasn't really in a place to receive it you know, I would listen and, and try to relate. And I mean, that was all I could really do. I wasn't in a place to push anybody to go to therapy or anything. Cause like I wasn't going, <laughs> but I do think now that I've, I've made leaps and bounds, that was kind of the, the impetus for this podcast was again, people, even you and I, we found each other, but people know that they know that I'm somebody that will will listen and and you know actively listen and and take what they've said to heart and, and continue to check on them and think about them every day. And people really do pick up on that and and they do see it or or feel it in you. It could be your aura, it could be your spirit, your soul, how whatever you want to name it. But these people see you and. Not only do they see you, but they see you as a source of strength, even when you don't see yourself as one. And that's really important. And you, you took your power back. I do have to ask, though, so when, when your daughter said that she wanted to join the Air Force, what was your reaction? I was happy because I felt like it was a great career choice for her. But
1: I do worry, I do. Because I know that this is a prevalent issue. And unless you have the right leadership, you're going to be victimized. Everybody's going to turn a blind eye and deaf ear because nobody wants to mess up somebody else's career. And so I've given her tips, tools, and procedures. But because I am who I am and where I am and have survived it, she knows if she ever begins to encounter it, she has an advocate. And then that is to her, her good. So her career is going to go a little bit different if she speaks up and tell me what's going on. And so I always try to create space for her to feel comfortable with telling me what's going on. Because I'm going to fight for my daughter.
0: Earlier, you had spoken about how back in the 90s, and, you know, before, Sharp wasn't around, EO wasn't around, IG wasn't around. But now, we've we've taken the steps forward where even over the summer, President Biden had signed that executive order that, It had monumental changes for our service members, which is incredible. But what do you think is needed for people to actually feel comfortable enough to come forward or feel comfortable enough to hold others accountable? Rochelle, empathetic
1: leaders, empathetic leaders, this should not go past the first complaint. As a matter of fact, changing the culture backing up their
0: words if this is zero tolerance then make it zero tolerance i about jumped out my chair when you said that because yes 100 percent, yes
1: can we just stop talking the talk you know if it's zero tolerance they have this not in my squad campaign people first campaign then if you're really going to talk about putting people first put people first stop with this rhetoric These platitudes that you have no intention of enforcing, because when it comes to your desk and it's this colonel and he's your battle buddy, are you really going to action it? soldiers, females and males? Listen, my male soldiers are coming in now with sexual trauma from home, so I just can't say females anymore, but because there are male leaders that harass male soldiers, it's Mm -hmm. happening. Male-on-male rape is very prevalent in the Army, but because of the stigma and because of the image of it all, no male will come forward. They just suffer in silence. Back it up. Make it people first for real. Make it zero tolerance for real. Prosecute. UCMJ these guys at grounds. Make good on your word. Stop saying it on TV, stop saying it in these big formations. And then when it comes down to the eaches, you can't properly execute your policy because you got favorites and all this other stuff. And then not only that, I think they need to take the sexual harassment complaint process out of the hands of green suitors. I think they need to have contracted civilians. How about we give it to CID? How about we give it to People who are outside of the organization because there's always a conflict of interest and I'm sick of it. Yes. This is where the breakdown in communication comes. This is where the breakdown in the complaint, there's too much conflict of interest. Uh-huh. God forbid if me as a chaplain take a complaint, get information from a soldier, I tell a commander he doesn't action it and then I have to go over his head and tell his boss, oh, well, now my, my career is in a job. Yeah, Take it out of the command's hands and put it in law put it in the hands of civilian contractors who are trauma-informed and can also take the complaint process to the next level. Yes, it's going to end up at a green suitor's desk because only commanders can execute your CMJ. Right. But whatever echelon that commander is at, from the soldier that's making the complaint to that commander, it needs to be outside of the I agree. It is so wrong. It is so toxic because it gets lost.
0: I completely agree. This is a little strange, but one thing I have always noticed every time I had been hospitalized, and I've been hospitalized a lot. Like, my mental health was just completely in shambles. But um, something that really confused me at first and stuck out to me was that when I was hospitalized and I was in an all-female unit, all I ever wanted to do was watch Law & Order SVU. What?! No. Yeah, I I couldn't make sense of it. And it was day in, day out. If we weren't in our therapy sessions, if we weren't at lunch or at some sort of group sessions, the TV would be on and it would be Law & Order SVU. And it drove me nuts because I was like, why are you watching this? You're just re-traumatizing yourself over and over again with this awful stuff. But then after maybe the fifth or sixth hospitalization, it finally dawned on me that, oh, this is the only time that these women are seeing the predator or the assailant or whomever, this is the only time that they're seeing them punished, meet some kind of retribution. The victim has justice. I I would say I 100% doubt that any of the women in any of these units had that experience. Where could they see that and be comforted by it? Law and Order SVU. So just think about that. Let's say I've been hospitalized 12 times, and in each of these hospitalizations, I was in a unit full of 30 women, and none of them had ever had the experience that they would see on Law & Order SVU. And that was what they wanted to watch while they were in a controlled environment so that they could feel safe. And it really blew my mind because I'm sitting there thinking, why are you watching this? You're just going to re-traumatize yourself. But at the end of that hour, there was retribution. There was a happy ending. This person got justice. And and we as viewers got to experience that second hand. The only place they could get that kind of validation was from Hollywood, not even other patients. At the end of each episode, there was resolution that very few people get in life. I think if I somehow got put back in the military, I do feel that I would have the tools to thrive. Whereas before, with my previous traumas, with the mental illness starting to manifest, and then having all of these men approach me sexually when I was just terrified of my own shadow, I I really didn't know what to do. I, I was vaguely aware of the resources, but I truly didn't know who to speak with. And I don't think that stand-down days are going to be the things that solve this problem. And I don't think that it's going to be another marketing campaign, like you said. And I, I 100% agree with you that it it's all about leadership. It's all about the culture. It's about us actually being the military that we say we are. It needs to be a complete cultural change. I'm sure you've heard it. You've been around the Army for quite some time. Depend us. That's how we refer to our our female spouses. That's demeaning. Oh, completely. They don't call the male spouses that, and there's no male equivalent. Things like that need to stop immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this undercurrent of disdain, and it's almost disgust toward anything that's even slightly feminine in the military. And that's even things that are perceived as feminine like talking about your mental health or calling another person on things that they shouldn't be saying. I brought this up in another interview, but, you know, it bears repeating because it it truly bothered me when I was active duty, and I really didn't notice this as a child. But during Movember and Mustache March. Everybody's growing out their mustaches and so many people, well, so many guys are sitting there giggling to themselves saying, oh, I look like a child molester. Oh, yeah. In what world is that something to laugh about or be proud of? Oh, wait, it's the military world. Of course. It's disgusting. And those are the things. That really need to change. So if it's November and someone's growing out their mustache and they're sitting there like, yeah, I look like a town molester, you need to call them out. That's not okay. Question them. Be like, what the heck are you saying? Do you even hear yourself right now? No, they don't.
1: And it sounded good in their own head until somebody sharps them.
0: Yeah, they need to be called on it because that behavior is completely unbecoming of everything that the military supposedly represents. And you never know just who you're who you're triggering. Mm
1: -hmm. And I would definitely be triggered upset. That's the reason why I'm I'm grateful for for my position, because I literally can tell anybody anything like Mm -hmm. you need to stop. That is not healthy. It is triggering. It is unbecoming. Oh, Jesus. People have no idea. If Mm -hmm. I heard that, I definitely would address
0: it. A few years back, I lived with a couple of Navy EOD, and um, in their shop, there was a girl that, you know, she enjoyed sex, which, nothing wrong with that at all. And they gave her a nickname, and it it just absolutely disgusted me. But um, when you go to the shooting range, and you shoot, and then when you're done, you go over to what's called the clearing barrel and you pull the trigger a few times to make sure that there's no more, there's no more rounds left in the chamber. Yeah. And that's what they nicknamed her. And not even for a second did any of them pause and say, "Hmm, this isn't all right. And not only that, but they didn't have any nicknames for guys that were sleeping with her. It was just her that had the nickname. And then it was something that was also perpetuated by leadership. Like, they would be like, hey, did you hear what they're calling? And then tortle about it and, and move on. And how is that okay? And truthfully, that wasn't even the worst nickname I'd heard about some of the girls on their staff. And it was, oh, it was just off. And I don't think that people actually want to take that extra three seconds to just say, hey, that's not cool. And then... For the person that does take that extra three seconds, they're ostracized or made fun of until they never bring it up again. Right.
1: And that's where they need to be supported um, by leadership for speaking up, you know, see something, say something. Oh, if I say something, then are you going to save me? Yes, exactly. Are you going to protect me when when the reprisal comes? when the retaliation (laughs) begins? You know, it's like unfinished. It's like, okay, do this. But I'm like, well, well, what What about the retaliation and the retribution? I'm going to, you know, because if I say something, and, and these soldiers are smart. These soldiers today, they're like, oh, I ain't saying nothing because then I'm going to be targeted. This is what they tell me. And guess what? Chaplain Bricks can't be everywhere at the same time. So if they're down at the unit, I'm up at battalion in my office, they're down there or they're on missions two, three hours away. and said and she was like yeah yeah i heard about you going to report me there's nobody to protect them because guess what the command is not messaging if you retaliate against a soldier then you will be you know you will be reprimanded there is none of that so soldiers don't feel safe coming
0: forward i do think this well this is a negative thought that i've tried to unthink unsuccessfully over the years but i I truly think that if people were really held accountable our force would be so reduced you know what i mean mean,
1: we'll be recruiting honey we'll be going to the jail cells (laughs) right because it would hurt the numbers but we have got to clean this listen if we're going to continue we cannot continue the way that we've been going the last 20 to 30 years because we don't need any more Vanessa Gillians in this army. And that was a huge wake-up call to the entire world. That thing went global. And so now, you know what parents are saying? You know, this is what we say. Our nation's sons and daughters are our national treasure. Really. So when you go out here recruiting and you finally get them in the force, and you come in, you treat them like trash. But I thought they were our, our, our nation's treasure, though. That's how you treat treasure, huh? And you get them in here and then you put a rank on them and then and then you equate their whole value to the level of their rank. And that child is beloved. I, I and This is what I do. I said, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's son. Would you want somebody to treat your daughter and son the way you treat that soldier? They have parents. And I tell you one thing, you won't want to be alone with their father for five minutes in a locked room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the human dynamic. Soldiers and sailors, airmen, and marines are not objects. They're people. And they have stories. Each of them, you have no idea the stuff that people escape just to join the military. Because sometimes, for some of them, their military wasn't escape from a very toxic home life. And then they get here. And this is how we treat
0: them. Pretty recently, the TikTok star Bella Porch went on a podcast and shared stories about her life prior to Becoming famous, and one of those stories was about joining the military. And when she shared her childhood trauma, it was, it would make your blood run cold, the things that she went through as as a very little girl. So when she got to basic training for the Navy, and it was like their first night in their bunks, and all the girls were crying and scared, and they missed their families, and they were second guessing this choice. She said she was sitting there with this huge grin and really excited and couldn't wait to start the next morning because she was like, this is my opportunity. I'm getting away. This is something new. I feel great. I was honestly floored because I remember my first night of field training where I was, yeah, I was like, what the heck was I thinking coming here? But for her, her her experience was just so different because the military was this gateway to a healthy life. Yep. And, and there and that's a lot of them come from
1: impoverished families, mm-hmm. broken families, their organic family, their family of origin. Some of them are awful. Drug dealers, drug addicts. I mean, prison. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. The stuff, the stories that I have heard and the military was the only structure that they have ever had. So that's why it is my it is my I know that I am here. I am called for such a time as this to rescue the broken and reject to protect these babies, to make sure, as much as it depends on me, wherever I am, to make sure that all these soldiers have a chance at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Thank you so much for that. I do have my final question. With your assailant still being active duty and knowing that he may or may not have continued to harm other women like this. What would you like to say to him now that you've crossed all these hurdles of healing where you've embraced change, you've embraced God, you've embraced your community, you've embraced all of these different tools that are now available? What would you say to this person who did everything, it sounds like, to make you crumble?
1: Yeah, you tried everything to destroy me. You tried to take my confidence. You tried to take my identity. You hated the fact that I was strong. And you tried to take my future away. But you didn't win. I beat you. You've become a protector.
0: You have your power back. You even have a daughter serving in the military currently that you know that she knows what to do in order to take care of herself. Tammy, I just again, want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your testimony, sharing your life experiences. The woman I see in front of me is full of light, full of determination, has this grit about her, like you said before, and this smile. And I know that every minute of the day even when you're not on duty you're thinking about protecting others and i think that is just so amazing especially after all that you've experienced it's so invaluable that you are in the army able to make this difference in other soldiers lives the way that other people have made that same difference in yours and if you want to shout any of those folks out by name please do so this is your chance
1: so i want to thank chaplain harry ree and Chaplain Don German, who stood in the gap and to help heal me, who believed me and believed in me and showed me that the chaplains have more power than what we think they do because they got me out of that bad situation. Even though it was at the end, they still had the power and the influence to get me out. And now because they got me out, I'm getting others out. So thank you guys.
0: If there was a listener right now that relates so much with your story where they feel like they can't speak up, they feel like they don't have the leadership. What would you tell them? What would be the best advice you could give them in this moment? Well, first of all, I would tell them, if you got nobody you can talk to, you can call me. I will believe you.
1: And the Army has changed a lot since my incident. So there are so many agencies. You have the the infant, the Family, the Military Family Life Counselors. They have the Family Life Chaplain. They have the SARC, I think it's the Sexual Assault Response Coordinator. Sharp. you have Victim Advocate, you have your child. These soldiers today, the military today overall, all forces, all branches, have so many more resources than what we had 20 years ago. You don't have to suffer in silence. You can report it, and don't ever be afraid to report it. I will say this, I'm going to report my case. Oh, my God! Because of what it did to not just me, but what more so what it did to my kids. I owe that to my kids to bring this person to accountability. Nobody has a right to hurt you, to touch you, to say things to you. You have the right to serve and serve in peace.
0: Oh, just thank you for even sharing this moment with us. That is incredible. I'm so happy to hear that so proud of you. And I'm beyond sure your family members and co-workers and anyone that's met you, they will be so, so proud of you to hear that you're taking a step forward. I'm over here trying not to tear up right now, but that was a moment. I'm telling you, Kathleen Briggs, you are the moment. I, I always joke with people about that. I'm like, no, no, no. He is or she is or they are the moment right now. But that, that is you right now. This is just going to have so much of an impact thank you so much. All right, there you have it, folks. That was our interview with Chaplain Briggs. Wasn't she amazing? You could hear just this resilience, this determination. And honestly, to me, this is the voice of a true hero. You could hear all of that in every single statement she made. You could hear the wisdom One thing I really appreciated about this episode was that she could legitimately tell you what the military looked like back in the 90s and how little access anyone had to getting help in this kind of a situation. So this really demonstrates that we have come a long way. So if you want to reach out to Chaplain Briggs and let her know that her testimony really changed something in your life or spirit, please reach out to her. You'll go to the Listen Now tab on our website, silencevoicesmst.com, and you will click on Salute to Survivors, fill in the prompts, and then write your message. We will actually be reading these to start the new year once our interviews complete. So please let our guests know how much their stories have impacted you because, again, it is incredibly difficult to get on here and share some of the darkest moments of your life. And even in this interview, right at the end, there was a life-changing moment. Wasn't that incredible? This is why this woman is so dynamic. And she's having a huge effect on so many lives within the Army. She, again, is absolutely my hero. What we're looking forward to in our next episode is an interview with a Navy lieutenant commander. She actually testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee There was a hearing on Capitol Hill back in 2019. Her story is something that will both make your blood run cold, but also give you an incredible sense of hope because she never gave up. When I spoke with her, it really changed what I thought about the judicial process throughout MST. And one more reminder, we still are running the giveaway for the $25 Starbucks gift cards. So go ahead and fill out the surveys that we have there at the end of the show notes of each of these episodes so that we can tailor these episodes more in the future for the next season so that this is the ultimate resource for MST survivors, their family members, and a place where you can find out more resources from nonprofits or other helper agencies and even subject matter experts that include social workers, mental health professionals, and more. So hang in there, guys. Again, I'm Rachelle Smith, your host, and as always, I invite you to stay safe, be kind, and of course, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Your support means the world to us. To keep these important conversations going, we rely on your generosity. Consider donating to help us continue to shed light on this crucial issue. Visit our website at www.silencevoicesmst.com to contribute, get involved, and join our community. Together, we can make a difference. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories, and remember, your voice matters.